to Esther 7. We turn this morning to pick up where we left off last time. This is at page 414 in your pew Bible. That's helpful for you. Last week we saw Haman in chapter 6 having a very bad day. A very bad day indeed. Actually, it kind of reminds me of a book that I used to read to the children when they were very little, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And that's what it was for Haman, a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Only what we read last week was just the beginning of that day. The day would get much, much worse uh, for this villainous man who had secured a royal decree from the clueless king, Ahasuerus, for a pogrom that would wipe from the face of the earth every Jew, man, woman, and child. Haman had arranged, remember, for the destruction, the killing, the annihilation of all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, 11 months hence, on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and for the plundering of all their goods. The decree was sealed with the king's own signet ring and with the king's overt and greedy approval bought from him by Haman with the promise of an almost impossible amount of money, probably from the Jewish plunder is what Haman has in mind. But 11 months is 11 months too long to wait for the destruction of one Jew in particular, Mordecai, in Haman's mind. So on that night before Haman's no good, very bad day, which is now stretching on. Haman had built a gallows on which to hang Mordecai this day with the approval he had hoped to secure from the king at break of dawn. But instead of hanging Mordecai high, ironically, Haman found himself having to honor Mordecai, uh, leading him seated high, he, Mordecai got high that day, didn't he? Not on a gallows, but on a horse uh, where Mordecai, where uh, Haman had to lead him uh, in his royal robes and uh, all decked out. Haman had to cry out for the bedecked Mordecai that this is the one uh, the Lord honor, the, uh, the king honors, and this is what happens to the one the king honors. He had to pay homage to Mordecai the very one he had planned and fully intended before lunch that day to kill. All of this has come about in ways, as we've seen, that could only have and unmistakably have unfolded by the invisible hand of God orchestrating and moving and directing and timing it all. All the thoughts, the words, the deeds, the actions, the events, down to the second providentially bringing Mordecai's past act of fidelity to the king, to the king's sleepless mind, bringing Haman at that particular split second alone into the court at morning's light. Meanwhile, in the background, wise Queen, uh, Queen Esther has been busily making sure that today's feast, the second feast to which 
the king and wicked Haman have been invited, is prepared just right. Because at that second feast, she is prepared to spill the beans, as it were. She would reveal her own Jewishness. She would identify with her people, her doomed people, the Jews. Expose Haman's wickedness and attempt to cash in. Uh, her, she's going to attempt to cash in on the king's favor and generous offer from the first feast to grant her whatever she wished, whatever her request, for the salvation of her people. Well, back to Haman. Haman has gone home by this point in the day to cry to his wife and their friends about his no good, very bad day, how his plans, made on their advice, no less, had not only been foiled, but actually turned on their head to his own deep dismay. And even as he is telling them the sad tale, the king's eunuchs arrive like a couple of police officers, to our mind's eye anyway, to lead him to Esther's feast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this marvelous history and amazing. All the lessons that you have uh, folded into it, we pray that we may find and uncover, or at least uh, because your word is so rich, Father, and so deep, at least those treasures that you intend for us to find today by your spirit at work in us in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Esther 6. Act 7, but we'll begin at verse 14 of chapter 6 for context. While they were yet talking with him, that is with Haman, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request, even to the half of my kingdom? It shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath. 
from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. A couple of weeks ago, I had the thrill of riding shotgun, so to speak, uh, with Trooper Curtis in his latest squad car, which is more really like a squad truck. And while we were patrolling, I was reminded of an important lesson that I would now like to pass along to you, free of charge this morning, and it is this. Do not think that because the police car behind which you are traveling is moving in the same direction as you, that the policeman inside is not keenly aware of your every move. I say that because uh, as we were patrolling, we, <laughs> patrolling eastbound on the Kentucky, Western Kentucky Parkway, I noticed out of the corner of my eye uh, um, one of the numbers on the box above the dashboard in front of Trooper Curtis suddenly displayed the number 92. And so I immediately checked the oncoming westbound traffic looking for whoever was moving at 92 miles an hour, uh, and no one was. And then I noticed that Curtis was not looking the same direction as I. He was looking in the rearview mirror. Friends, may I issue this warning to you. The state police know exactly how fast you are traveling, even if you're coming up behind them at the time. And don't think for a moment that you can avoid being caught by slowing down when you see them, because once you've seen them, as my father, who is a, was a police officer, says, once you've seen me, I have already seen you. Uh, no matter what direction you're traveling. Well, now, all of this is due to a very inventive man by the name of Robert Watson Watt, the inventor of radar. It was actually a wartime invention for use in the military, an invention for which he was richly uh, awarded a great deal of money, actually the largest sum of money ever awarded for a wartime invention. But sometime later, he was out for a drive in Canada, and he was caught for speeding. And you'll never guess how. 
he was caught on radar. And the irony of it all is caused him to write this little piece of verse. Pity Sir Robert Watson Watt, strange target of his radar plot. And thus with others I could mention a victim of his own invention. Uh, Don't we see in that history what we just read, something of what happened here to Haman? I want to come back to that matter of being caught in one's own radar when we come to the point with which I intend to conclude this morning, which is justice. But first, I want to start by considering this point of wisdom and justice later. First, first wisdom. I know that we've considered these two sides by side before uh, to compare foolishness and, and wisdom as they are embodied in Haman and in Esther. But I cannot help but notice here again, as if on display for all of us to reap a bountiful harvest of the latter rather than the former. How helped Haman would have been, wouldn't he, if he had plucked even one stalk of the wisdom of Solomon that we considered for the first half of this year of Lord's Day morning sermons. Would that Haman had pursued wisdom, true wisdom, which begins with what? What is the beginning of wisdom? You say it with me. What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, yes. Would not Haman have prospered if he had turned to the Lord in fear, to the God of Abraham, to Mordecai's God, to the God of the Jews, instead of abhorring him by abhorring his people, assaulting him by assaulting his people? What if instead Haman had recognized that Yahweh, that Jehovah, is the one to be obeyed. And failing to do that perfectly, as we all sadly do, and just confessed a few moments ago to the Lord, the God on whose everlasting mercy, abounding love and steadfast grace We must cast ourselves entirely in repentance and in faith. What if Haman had heeded the Bible's counsel not to trust in one's own cleverness, not to lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways to acknowledge him, and he will direct your path? How differently his life would have continued, how happily, how, how joyfully, how richly for him and his children. Or, or maybe if he had paid attention to the simplest of Solomonic commandments, wisdom like this, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. How miserably Haman failed on both of those counts. Both sides of that equation. Was it not just the day before this no good, very bad day of his that we heard Haman boasting to his friends and his family 
You remember this about his wealth, about his, his power, about his prestige, about his promotions, about his plans. He presumptuously prognosticated about tomorrow that it would be the day he finally rid himself of the main stone in his sandal, not knowing what the day would bring to him. Tooted his own horn, didn't he? He's blowing and blowing and blowing on his own trumpet, not knowing that in fact the whole while he's playing taps. For his own funeral. He was acting very foolishly and he causes me and maybe you too to halt in our tracks and ask how in any way and in how many ways I resemble Haman. And his foolish pride and his presumptuous planning and his scheming when I should instead be entrusting myself to the Lord and in all my ways acknowledging him, trusting in him with all my heart and leaning not on my own understanding who makes my path straight, not being wise in my own eyes, but fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. I ask you how you're doing at all of that today. Only you can answer for yourself, of course. I hope that you will take some time today to do just that. Well, in stark contrast to Haman's foolishness, once again we have Esther's wisdom uh, in full display for us here at the feast where the threesome are now reclining on couches around the board and she has not been in haste, has she, at all? This is the second of two feasts. It's the third of three encounters that she's had with the king since this matter has been brought to her attention. Is she not for us here a living example in flesh and blood of the glorious instruction we received from Solomon back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3? That for everything there is a season and a time. There's a time to keep silence, and there's a time to speak. Esther may have been stunningly beautiful, and in fact, we know she was, but she was certainly not just another pretty face. There is by now a deeply abiding and governing wisdom in her heart by which her approach to the king has been carefully choreographed. Her words wisely measured first in her heart long before crossing her lips. Again, in sharp contrast, right, to Haman, whose, whose words flow apace, especially about himself and even in the presence of the king. Esther has known when to keep silence and now she knows when to speak. And she knows what to speak, doesn't she? Dear ones, please don't take this the wrong way. Would you please be wise to keep your mouth shut? 
would you please be wise to keep your mouth shut when it needs to be kept shut? You don't have to air every one of your opinions. Your opinion about everything doesn't really matter. You're, you don't have to vo give voice to every feeling going on in your heart or everything that you have against someone, some concern. That's the Christian way to gossip, isn't it? I'm just concerned for so-and-so. <laughs> shut up. Shut, shut up your mouth, you know. Stop talking. Be wise. There's a time to say nothing. Remembering this, that when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And then when it comes time to speak... Don't you love the beauty and the balance in her reply to the king? Custom fit to his two-part offer of her wish and her request. It's there in verse 3. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. Ah, now she's got the king's attention, doesn't she? <laughs> All of his attention with very few words. Did you notice that? Very few words, but very skillfully spoken. Oh, my. Whence, whence, whence do wise words rise do you desire to speak wisely? Do you, do you want to be known as a person from whose lips come wise words? Where will that come from? Well, look at where they come from. What's Esther been doing for days now? She's been praying. She's been praying with fasting along with Mordecai and the Jews of, of Susa. They've been pre pleading to the Lord, praying, fasting to God, to give just the right words to speak at just the right time. If you are wise, you will ask the same thing. It will often be a prayer of yours. Lord, please give me the right words at the right time time with my family when I'm talking to them about one thing or another, with, with my co-workers, with my bosses, with my employees, with my friends, with my enemies. Lord, give me the wisdom to know when to and then when it's time for me to open my mouth, give me the wisdom of words, wise words. And you know what? He will. He does. And, and I know this for a fact from his own word, but, but you know it from experience. Many of you have experienced just exactly that answer to your prayers. Well, wisdom here is on display, isn't it? And we could go on with that, but we come second to justice. 
to justice, and it is delicious, isn't it? Though we don't relish the death of anyone, even of our worst enemy. Ah, Haman, 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 have you not heard? Has Solomon's wisdom never been brought to your attention that whoever digs a pit will fall into it? That a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling? The point of the proverb is, of course, not that, that everyone who ever digs a pit anywhere falls into the pit. That's not the point. The point is that, that when a person digs a pit for someone else to fall into, it is often they themselves who, fall, who find the bottom of it, right? Who have the stone they thought to use to steamroll someone else, roll right back on and flatten them. Now, don't you see that? You've seen this maybe at the workplace. Maybe you've experienced yourself. Maybe you've been guilty of it yourself. Oh, the, the sabotage intended to undermine someone else in the office, you know, to get them fired maybe or to get their promotion because you want it so bad for yourself. Whatever it is, comes right back on the head of the saboteur. As Haman builds the gallows, built the gallows, when he built them, he had no idea that he'd be the one hanging from them the very next day. Esther, as we say, has spilled the beans. And, and when the king hears that the chosen queen Esther's life is on the line, he cuts right through the fog of the wine now and demands to know who and where is the source of this danger and she points right at Haman and calls him out for what he is a foe an enemy this wicked Haman now she has spilled the beans and now Haman spills his wine you know right down the front of his uh, already disheveled robes he is terrified but what is this the king gets up to take a stroll to go out and take a walk in the garden? I mean, what's going on? Well, you get this hint. He's burning in wrath as he heads to the garden. One wonders what's going through his mind, but, you know, it's not hard to piece this together, uh, knowing what we do about Persian culture and, and royalty. One can hardly uh, not imagine that uh, he's, he's out in the garden weighing his next move. And very carefully. I mean, after all, though, though Haman had engineered it and even duped uh, the king into it, it was his royal decree, wasn't it? And, as we know from Persian culture, irrevocable decree that now demanded and required the death of his favored queen, Esther, and her people. I think what we're seeing here is Ahasuerus heads out in the garden as Ahasuerus hung on the horns of a real dilemma. But as a continuation of that providential direction that we saw last week, the invisible hand at work and moving, divine timing. <laughs> Only God does these things, could do these things, supplies Ahasuerus the perfect solution, the resolution to his dilemma, just as he walks back to the drinking place, Haman is falling 
on Esther's couch. And no one imagines that, that Haman was going to attempt to rape uh, Esther, you know, in that context. But it is all the opportunity that is needed for the king to call for Haman's instant arrest. They cover Haman's face immediately. What an interesting example, isn't it, of what Eliphaz tells Job about the crafty. Remember Eliphaz's advice? The crafty get caught in their own craftiness. Interestingly, Eliphaz says this. He says, they meet with darkness in the daytime. They grope at noonday as in the night. Well, that's Haman here. And the invisible one, the invisible one places a thought in the eunuch Harbona's helpful head. Moreover, he says, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king says, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai. And then the author tells us, then the wrath of the king abated. Justice. Caught in his own radar. Hoist on his own gallows. If we may take Hamlet's line and adjust it for the situation. Hoist on his own gallows. Dear flock, know this. God will bring justice. Every evil that has been visited upon you and on the heads of those committed to the Lord, every one of those evils and offenses will be paid sooner or later. Patience, dear ones. Patience. Wait. Leave it to the wrath of God. Remember it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Vengeance is mine. This we learn when we come into the house of the Lord, isn't it? Remember the man in Psalm 73, all shaken up, his feet had almost slipped. He'd almost tripped and fallen. Why? Because he saw how the wicked were prospering. He, he was so frustrated. He was so brought to the end of himself. Where does he come and find the answer to it all? Then he says, I came to the sanctuary. And there it all becomes luminously clear at church wrath awaits the wicked make no mistake about it now that may be of comfort to us but it's also unsettling isn't it it ought to be why because looking at Haman, whom do you see? 
Do you not see yourself in Haman? Too much of yourself anyway. And looking at the unrighteous wrath of King Ahasuerus, what do you glimpse? Something of the righteous wrath of the capital K king of kings, the righteous king against you. What settles, what satisfies the wrath of King Ahasuerus in this story? What brings deliverance from death for God's people in this story? It's the death of the enemy who is Haman. But who is the enemy in your story? Who is the enemy of the king in the story of your life. You are. You are the king's enemy. I am the king's enemy. We made ourselves God's enemies by our sin. But what settles and satisfies the wrath of the king in your case and in mine, or rather, I guess we should ask, who? Well, here's the wonder. And I say wonder because vocabulary fails me. In your story, in your gospel story, it is not you, the enemy, who dies. Who settles the wrath of the king against you? The king, the king himself, he did not send you to the tree. He went to the tree himself. He bore the penalty for your sin. He paid the price. He satisfied his own righteous wrath against you by dying himself. In your place and in mine on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us, for you, and through Christ God reconciled you to himself. Wonder of wonders and justice. Yes, justice. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is justice. But for us, it is the most stunning and an and amazing satisfaction of justice imaginable, conceivable. Christ the King in our place. Christ 